If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 19 and 19. We aren't going to look at verse 20. We're going to save Hymenaeus and Alexander for next week. In the winter of 1981, I was a commercial fisherman uh, out of Hawaii, out of Honolulu, and uh, we were targeting the fresh fish market. And uh, we would go out to sea on uh, 14-day runs. And we would try to go out to sea when the weather was at its worst. We'd get better prices for the fish um, if the weather was bad because the smaller boats wouldn't fish. And so we would wait until the biggest, baddest storms came, and that's when we'd head out. We would take about three days, go out towards uh, Maui and Nihoa and Necker Island, out towards uh, a place called Gardner Pinnacles, and... And on the way out, we would go by many reefs in the Hawaiian chain. There was one small uh, reef there with a very small island, which was actually at one time a military landing strip. It's basically an airport built on this very small island. The entire island is just the landing strip with a couple buildings along each side of it. It is called French Frigate Shoals, and it's now a research station for um, biologist people or whatever. We were... Uh, Headed past uh, French Frigate Shoals when, when the captain called us up to stand outside the bridge on the railing on the, the upper part of the wheelhouse and to look south because he said he thought he saw something. And we said, what? I mean, it's raining. Um, it's nighttime. It's a bad storm. So we're out there in our slickers just looking south because the captain said he thought he saw something out of the corner of his eye. And uh, we said, what? He says, I don't know. It was just, it was, there's something out there. Just keep looking. And so we kept looking, and sure enough, um, we saw a, a red flare shoot up and immediately get blown into the water. Well, we were on the north side of the reef, and the flare was kind of in the middle of the reef, and there was no way we could actually go towards the flare because of the, the coral heads and things in the reef. So we called the Coast Guard, and the Coast Guard called the research station, which was at the other end of the reef where um, the little compound was and the landing strip, and we waited until morning. There um, we discovered that the flare actually came from the only other part of the reef, which was above water. It was a sandbar about 40 feet long and about 20 feet wide. That was about a foot above the water, and whenever storms came, it would constantly be washed over. And uh, what had happened was, is there was a captain, a fisherman, and uh, he was headed out towards where we were going to go fishing, and uh, he decided to uh, take a nap. He decided to put his boat on autopilot, which was very common, but the wind was blowing so hard it blew the boat off course, and he left a very inexperienced crew member uh, reading a book in the wheelhouse. And he did not awake until a coral head punched through the bottom of the boat. They barely escaped. They got into a life raft and thought for sure they would be washed out to sea. And they landed on this tiny little sandbar, the only one in the whole reef. I tell you that story because it's basically, it basically illustrates exactly what we are going to look at this morning. I mean, almost with perfect precision. The captain knew that he shouldn't have ever taken a nap while going by a reef in a storm. You just don't do that. 
You don't leave somebody inexperienced at the helm. You just don't do that. And today we look at Christians who are captains of sorts. We all have our faith to steer towards heaven's harbor. And as we are trying to get from here to there, there are many reefs in the way. And that is what this text is talking about, the shipwreck of faith. We're at the tail end of a section that Timothy is addressing false teachers and false doctrine and and the consequences they have in the church. And he has gone through in a very systematic way and addressed this issue. He's addressed it theologically. He's shown how practically in his life the theology works out. And now he's going to end the section where he addresses this in chapter 1. He'll take it up again in chapter 4 and then again in chapter 6. But as we come to this final section, we looked at verse 18 last week, and we're going to look at 19 this week, and Lord willing, verse 20, um, the week after this. And there are some really excellent things in this passage. And uh, so this morning, follow along as I read verses 18 through 20. We are going to focus on verse 19 and the shipwreck of faith. Paul says this, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regards to faith. Then he says, among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. We're going to look at that next week, but today we just want to look at verse 19. Before we do that, I just want to summarize what we learned last week. We learned that as Christians, we are all soldiers and we are all in a battle waging a war. A war against demons, a war against Satan, a war against unbelieving men, and a war against the flesh. As Christians, we are soldiers fighting in this war, and it will never end until we die, or until Christ comes back. Secondly, we are commanded to fight. It is not an option. It is an imperative given to us by God to fight the good fight. And third, because we are soldiers, and because we are in a war, and because we are commanded to fight a good fight, we also need to realize that the battle is not just from without, but also within. We learn that the scriptures say that your sinful nature will wage war against your soul, wage war against your mind, that even if Satan was dead, you would still be tempted to sin because you yourself are a sinner. We are all sinners. We also looked at how in this world the battle is waging all around us. And we just mentioned five major areas. One, the battle is being fought for the souls of men just as Satan tries to prevent or to snatch away or to blind men from receiving the word of God, the gospel, and being saved. Also, there is a battle being fought against believers as demons, fallen angels, Satan, and unbelieving men will try to tempt believers or deceive them so that they will sin and rebel against God. There is also a battle being fought for the family. 
This is one of Satan's major target areas. He is trying to corrupt the role of men and women, not only in the church, but in the world. He is trying to destroy families, cause divorce, cause isolation, hatred, all of these sorts of things, destroy children in the process. Fourth, there is a battle being fought for sound doctrine as Satan labors diligently to introduce destructive heresies in the church. He does this by infiltrating the true church from without and also from within. And finally, there is a battle waging within each one of us as we war against our own sinful lusts and passions. Now, having told Timothy to fight the good fight, he then reminds Timothy how to fight that good fight. And that's what we're going to find in verse 19. First, we are told how to fight. Notice what the text says. Keeping faith and a good conscience. Just stop there. The word keeping here literally means to keep or, or hold or retain in one's possession. He says you fight the good fight by keeping, retaining and holding your faith. Timothy is supposed to hold on to his faith. And in the Greek, it's not the faith, it's faith. It's talking about his personal faith in the truths of Christianity. Timothy, you hold on to those body of truth that I have taught you, that your mother taught you, that your grandmother taught you, that you have heard me preach, that you know are right, you hold on to that. You maintain your personal faith and commitment to those truths. You see, your faith and your conscience is to be founded upon the objective word of God. The scriptures never change because God never changes. So as you come to the scriptures, you learn what they say, and then you hold on to those truths. That is maintaining your faith. If you were to turn over to Jude... Verse 3, this is what you would read. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Here, Jude uses the definite article, the faith. He's talking about everything Christianity is, the entire corpus of biblical teaching which comprises the Christian faith. He says, you hold on to the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. And then if you were to go down and look at verse 12 of Jude, um, it's only one chapter, verse 12, you would see, that he describes these false teachers and what they do. He says, These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts. When they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Not a very good picture of false teachers. But notice how he pictures them. These are like reefs made up of coral heads. And that the Christian who does not have a grasp of the truth and who is not on guard and is not watching, that person will run their faith upon the rocks of their false doctrine and wicked behavior and will shipwreck their faith. 
And that is exactly what our text is talking about today. So the application of this is hold on to your personal faith in the truth of God's word. Now this, of course, implies something. It implies that you have to first know God's word. You have to know what God's word says in order to hold on to it. You can't hold on to something you don't yet possess. You know, there is a premium today of of the need for Christians who are well-trained in the scriptures. You know, even among most churches that are Bible churches or whatever, a lot of people just don't even know the fundamentals of Christianity. They couldn't tell you the Ten Commandments. They don't even know where the Ten Commandments are found. They don't know from the scriptures why Jesus is God. They couldn't show you why he died on the cross and what happened when he died on the cross and show you three or four texts which explain how a person comes to the Lord. Most Christians in fundamental Bible-preaching churches cannot do that. And this is not good because you can't hold on to that which you don't know. It's not merely believing, it's knowing from the scriptures. It's being able to say, this is what the word of God says right here, look. So often we're just told things, but we don't know it. And the average cult member can come to the average door of the average Christian and just devour them, just annihilate them from the Bible. And this is not good. We need to get to the place where we can equip ourselves so that we can hold on to our faith in the midst of a world which is going in a different direction. And I think most of the blame lies at the foot of preachers. Preachers, Bible teachers, leadership of the church in general are not equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. And the other part of the blame lies at the feet of Christians who know they need to know God's word, who know they need to study the scriptures, but don't take the initiative to get founded in the the truth of God's word. You know, a lot of times when we talk about the Great Commission, you know, that we need to obey the Great Commission, most people, when you say that, think of what? Evangelism, right? I mean, go, make disciples. What is a disciple? A disciple is a learner, one who sits to learn at the feet of another. But a lot of times we don't realize what else Jesus said. Jesus said, not only go make disciples, he said in that process, be baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He says, get disciples who are not just professors, but who are willing to stand up in public and profess their faith in Christ. And that's not all Jesus said, the Great Commission was. He then ended it with teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That is what the Great Commission is all about. It is about leading people to the Lord so that they get to the place where they are are committed enough to stand up in public and confess their faith in baptism... in in Christ, in the process of baptism, and then they continue to learn all that God has taught us in his word. That is what the church is all about. Now, the second thing we are told to hold on to in the text, not only are we to hold on to this faith, that is this body of truth that each of us is to acquire and maintain in our own life, we are also, the text says, to maintain a good conscience. 
God has given us a conscience, and he expects us to keep it or maintain it in its goodness. The question is, how do we do that? How do we do that? Well, when we were studying verse 5, we noticed of chapter 1, where Paul says the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Here, conscience and faith are linked together along with a pure heart, which are to produce love. That is the goal of all sound Bible teaching. And we learn from this previous study of verse 5 that there's basically six kinds of good consciences mentioned in the Scripture. There is the good conscience mentioned six times. There is the blameless conscience, the honest conscience, the clear conscience, the perfect conscience, and the cleansed conscience. This is the kind of conscience we are all to have. This conscience which is calm and free and isn't screaming at us. Then... There is the Christian's opportunity or obligation to avoid five other kinds of conscience, and that is the weak conscience, wounded conscience, defiled conscience, evil conscience, and seared conscience. We talked about the conscience as being like a smoke alarm. It is God's smoke alarm in your head, in your heart, that tells you when there are the fires of sin are starting to burn. And it should go off. But we talked about the person who has a weak conscience or a wounded conscience. His is kind of like the smoke alarm that, that goes off, you know, in your house when you're making toast. I mean, you know, you just want to make some toast. You don't want the, the smoke alarm screaming at you, and so you're grabbing the door and you're trying to fan the tiny little bit of smoke out. But it's so sensitive, it's just screaming, it's screaming. That's the weak conscience. Extremely sensitive, beyond what the scriptures say. The other extreme would be the defiled, the evil, and seared conscience. That is like a conscience, the smoke alarm, that allows your house to burn down with you in it. And it never goes off. It just lets your whole house burn and your whole family and it never goes off. That is what happens if you sear your conscience. And this is such a critical area for believers. I want to give you some more specific examples, first of what a good conscience is not, and then what a good conscience is. First, a good conscience is not necessarily a strong conscience. You know, you can have a very strong conscience, but have it programmed with the wrong information. So just having a strong conscience doesn't mean it's good. Secondly, a good conscience is not necessarily a conscience that is deceived. Because you can be deceived into believing something is true when it's not, and just because you have passions and convictions about your deception doesn't mean your conscience is good. Because you're really passionate about things which are not good. Third, a good conscience cannot exist where sin is present. If you are in sin, you cannot have a good conscience. That is what a good conscience is not. But let me tell you what a good conscience is. First, a good conscience is a conscience that is accurately informed by the Word of God. An accurately informed conscience. And secondly, a good conscience goes off when it's supposed to. And it doesn't go off when it's not supposed to. Now, 
What's interesting is it's supposed to go off in several situations. And let me explain them to you. First, it should warn you when you are sinning. When you are sinning, your conscience should be screaming at you to stop, stop. That's what it should be telling you. Don't do this. And it should also go off whenever you're being tempted to sin. Don't do that, it should say. Stay away from that now. Don't do that. Don't do that. A little Jiminy Cricket on your shoulder. Don't do that. And third, it should go off when you are going into an area where you know you may be tempted. In other words, you have this specific weakness that is peculiar to you, and you know what your weakness is, and you know you're going to go here or see this or experience that, and you know you're going to be tempted to sin, and so your conscience should go off and say, Warning. Danger, Will Robinson. Don't go there. If you had a good conscience and you decided to sin, your conscience would be screaming at you. It would be producing guilt and anxiety and stress and pressure from within until you ceased and desist from the sin. A good conscience will also go off when you're tempted. You know, guys, you're, you're looking at the Sunday paper and you're flipping through there and all of a sudden you get to the lingerie ads... And you're thinking to yourself, you know, my wife might want something like that for Christmas. (laughs) And your conscience is saying, do not look at the picture. Do not look. And that's when you have to obey your conscience, look the other way, turn the page, and get to the tool section. And women, when you are standing there with a group of other women and maybe, you know, there's conversation going on and all of a sudden it's time to do a little gossiping and a little slandering and a little destroying of somebody else who isn't present, your conscience should say, do not participate. Tell the person to stop slandering and do not engage in that conversation. It should warn you when those things happen. A good conscience should also go off if you have any area of personal weakness. You see, see, convictions are what make really godly men and women. Really godly men and women aren't those who just say, well, you know, I'm going to use every freedom to every degree and then just be godly. No. The godly person is the one who understands himself. They understand their weaknesses. They understand the chinks in their own armor. They understand where they are tempted. And they create for themselves personal convictions. That is, self-imposed rules or regulations for themselves to keep themselves in purity and a good conscience before God. Let's say that um, you watch too much TV and you become convicted about this because... You, you know, though, in your mind, the Bible doesn't say, thou shall not watch TV. And so you tell yourself, hey, it's not a sin. But then your conscience is saying, hey, man, the Bible says, do not be mastered by anything. And the Bible says that we are to redeem the time for the days are evil. And the Bible says, you know, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is honorable, whatever is of good repute, you know, let your mind dwell on these things. 
And so in your heart, you're thinking, man, I just can't say no. I keep watching three hours, four hours every night, and I'm not redeeming the time. I'm not doing this. And so even though it's not sin, to you it's sin because it's hindering your devotion to God, and it's hindering what you know God wants you to do. And so you make some convictions. I am not going to watch it except on Friday night and Saturday night, let's say. And then... If you keep going against that, every time you watch TV on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday, your conscience goes off. And it starts to torment you. Not because TV watching is sin, but because you are going against your convictions. Then you have to make even more drastic regulations. You take the TV and you punt it or whatever. (laughs) Why? Because you want to be a master of your own life. You want to be in control of your own desires, your own flesh, your own passions. And for somebody else, they may not have a problem there. But to you, it's your problem. And so you build convictions to buttress up your areas of weakness. Every year in the church I previously pastored, we had this thing called Young Men in the Run. And uh, in that, we would teach young men about purity and, and girls and dating and you know stuff like that. And uh, at the end, I would always um, give them an opportunity to, to submit questions, um, you know, without writing their name. Just, they could submit them, put them in a box, and then I'd answer them. And invariably, every single year, they, at least one person would ask this question. How far can I go with a girl without sinning? And yeah, we're sitting there. That's an interesting question, isn't it? But you know, that question in and of itself reveals a crack in the foundation of the person who asked it. Now, why is that? Well, this is how I usually reply. Let's say I were to take you to the Grand Canyon. And you know, it's a beautiful canyon, this giant gorge. It just drops straight off down to the rocks below. Now, if you were to say, how far... Can I hang my toes over the edge of the rim of the canyon and not fall off? What? Don't even go near the rim, is what I'd tell them. You see, what happens is, is when you have these freedoms, sure, it's okay to stand on the rim of the canyon. You can walk on the rim, all that shale, the loose sand, you can live there. I mean, theoretically speaking, you can put, you know, 50, 49% of your weight over the edge and not fall off. You can run up and down there. You can do spirals there, theoretically, and not fall off. That is, quote, okay. It's not falling off the edge. But everybody knows if they live on the edge, they're going to fall off the edge. And that is why the wise person doesn't get close enough so he never falls off the edge. That is what I mean by making personal convictions for yourself. And your conscience should not just go off when you're falling through the air headed for the rocks below to be splattered. It's like, oh, it's kind of like you blew it all the way down. It should be going off When you're getting close to the edge, now there's a cliff there. Stay back. Don't lean over the edge. Don't get as close as you can. Just stay back. 
Why? Because we don't want to fall off. And we don't want to fall into sin. And so part of being a Christian and part of being a manly, um, a godly man, a godly woman, is to, to know yourself well enough to say, hey man, I just can't go here. This is my line. And that's a safe line to keep me. Now you may be able to go there, but I can't. And so that's what your conscience should do. It should tell you, warn you, not only when you are sinning, not only when you are tempted to sin, but when you get close to those areas where you know you could fall into sin. Now, the next thing Paul tells Timothy is not only is he to fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, he then tells us what we are to fight against. Notice what he says. He says, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith which some have rejected. The NIV doesn't do a very good translation here. It it says some have rejected these. Rejected is to be singular because it refers back to the nearest antecedent, which is good conscience. Which some have rejected, that is a good conscience, and the consequences are they have suffered shipwreck. The term rejected is an interesting word. It's a violent word. It means to thrust aside, to push aside, to violently get out of the way, willful rejection of something, to thrust it aside. In Acts 7.39, Stephen used it when he he told the Jews that they thrust it aside or pushed aside the law of Moses. It was also used in Acts 13.46 when Paul was um, preaching to the Jews at Poseidon Antioch and they rejected his gospel message. And then from that, that time on, he went to the Gentiles. This is what he's saying. If you are a Christian, you are to be maintaining your faith and you are to be maintaining a good conscience. But some people have taken their good conscience and have thrust it aside. That is, their fire alarm has gone off and they've jerked the battery. They've pulled the battery out of their fire alarm and the consequences are shipwreck. That's what the text is saying. And this one concept is worth Several sermons. That is why we aren't going to even do verse 20. But I want to really focus on this because I think a lot of Christians don't understand how important their conscience is. It is, it is man's best friend, not a dog. Your conscience is so important to you because it is the instrument by which God warns you when things are bad. And you can't separate conscience and faith. As you look through the scriptures, the two are connected several times together in the same context, like in verse 5. So let's first look at faith, then we'll look at conscience, and then we'll look and see how critical the two are and how they work together and why you cannot maintain faith if you thrust aside your conscience. Now, we know from Hebrews 11, the great faith chapter, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen, right? I mean, that is what faith is. It's not just an intellectual understanding of the data, but it is a volitional commitment, the assurance and conviction, the willingness to submit to that data. And as you look at the whole chapter, it doesn't say they all knew what was right. They all did what was right. 
Right? And that's why they're in the chapter. Because they all had a faith that worked out, and you could see by their deeds that they had that true saving faith. We also know from verse 6 of Hebrews 11 that whatever is not of faith is what? Sin. So you've got to have faith. It's got to be a working faith. And if you aren't operating in faith, that is, if you are operating in doubt, you will be sinning. Now turn over to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. James addresses the issue of faith. Not from a saving perspective, but from a qualitative perspective. James describes for us what saving faith does once it is possessed. Once you have come to salvation, James says, this is what your faith does. And he says this, starting in verse 14 of James 2. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go, in peace, be warm and filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, that it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone will may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe God is one? You do well. Hey, the demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar. You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result, the works of the works, faith was perfected. And the scriptures which were fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not faith alone. In the same way, Was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. What he's saying here is this. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, right? And then what did he do? He took his son, his only begotten son, he obeyed the command, he took him up to the mountain, he bound him, he built the altar, he was going to kill him. That is true faith. He says, if it's faith that says, oh yeah, you know, I believe God told me to do something, but I'm not doing it, that is not faith. That is worthless faith. That is not what saving faith does. That's James' whole point. And so faith is not merely an intellectual grasp of truths, but is a commitment to the intellectual understanding of truths. Jesus said it this way, every good tree produces good fruit. Every vine that abides in me bears fruit. Every one. John said it this way in John 3.36, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but what? The wrath of God abides on him. 
Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 6.10 and in Galatians 5.21 and Ephesians 5.5 that those who are characterized by continually sinning and indulging the flesh shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, is Paul saying... Now, this is the same Paul who did, you know, Romans. Now, is Paul saying, hey, if you're good, you will get to heaven? No. He's saying, if you're one of those people who is getting to heaven, you will do good. That's what he's saying. The author of Hebrews said it this way, And he, Christ, became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Titus said it this way in Titus 2, 11 and 12, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Now listen to this. Instructing us, what? The grace of God which has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. That grace... That salvation is instructing us to, one, deny ungodliness, two, deny worldly desires, three, to live sensibly, four, to live righteously, and five, to live godly in the present age. That is what true grace and saving faith does. It instructs us to deny ungodliness. So, if you're denying If you're not denying ungodliness, if you are indulging in the flesh, if you are not living sensibly, if you are not living righteously, if you are not living godly, if you are not living right now in this presence for the glory of God, you have no assurance of salvation. You may be saved, but you have no assurance. Why? Because true saving faith transforms a person's life. And this is why John says this in 1 John 3.10. Now just listen to this. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. And you just, what does obvious mean? Clear, easy to spot, no problem. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. That's pretty clear. That is crystal clear. And we have a whole group of Christians now who want to say, I want to live any way I want and do anything I want and be any way I want. I'm, I'm not going to submit to my Lord. I'm not going to follow the Lord. I'm not going to do what the Word of God says, but I'm a Christian. Oh, you have no assurance of that. As a matter of fact, the Bible seems to say something radically different. And this does not mean that Christians don't sin. We all sin. And John says earlier in her book, if anyone says he has no sin, he's a liar and the truth is not in him. But if you can just live in sin and, in, and be indulging sin and know you're in rebellion against God and just be characterized by that in your life and have it not bother you, have it not affect you, there is no assurance of salvation because true saving faith transforms a person, makes them into a new creature and changes their life. That is why Paul said in Ephesians 2.10, after saying we've been saved by grace through faith and we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. So this is why the, the Bible tells us we need to maintain this faith, keeping, holding on to it. The obedience to the truth of those things that we know are right. And that is why, when we looked at verses 9 and 10, when we saw that big list of sins there, at the very end of that list of sins, he says, and whatever else is contrary to what? Sound teaching. Now that's interesting, isn't it? He doesn't say, and whatever else is contrary to 
unrighteousness, but sound teaching. Why? Because sound teaching is the faith, and when you hold on to the faith, you will obey, not disobey that faith. That's what it means to hold on to the faith. Now, what about a good conscience? Remember, this is the eternal, internal fire alarm that God gives you. It says you're sinning, you're being tempted to sin, or you're getting close to sin. Now, he says some of these people have rejected this. They've thrust it aside, and the results of that is they've pulled their battery out and ran their faith upon the rocks. When we, had, uh, we were out there fishing at nighttime, you know, it'd be good to sleep every once in a while. And so we would sometimes be adrift at nighttime, and we had what is called a proximity alarm on our radar. So if one of these huge freighters would be coming by, and some of them are giant. I mean, they're, they're 100 feet above the water and, you know, hundreds of feet long. And they will hit a 40, 50, 60, 100-foot fishing boat and just obliterate them and never even feel it, never even stop. And they didn't even know what hit them. And uh, every year, three or four fishing boats would be destroyed, and a lot of times the people would be lost because they would be hit by one of these huge freighters. Well, we had this little alarm, which if any boat got within about six miles of our boat, it would go off and we'd get up and we'd make sure that we weren't destroyed. And how foolish it would be to just turn that off because, you know, after all, we need some sleep. And we don't want to be woke up by that irritating alarm just because this huge freighter is coming to crush us. And this is what it means when we reject our conscience. When you, when you know something is wrong and your conscience is going off and you do it anyways, that's like plucking the battery. That's like turning off the proximity alarm. Turn over to Romans chapter 14. Romans 14. In Romans 14, in the entire chapter, Paul is addressing gray areas. Not black and white issues, but gray areas. I want to show you something pretty critical. In this chapter, he's saying, you know, um, you need to have your own personal convictions about certain things, about, you know, how much TV you're going to watch or whatever. He says, you know, some people can eat meat, they're fine. Other people are vegetarians, and, and that's fine too. One person regards one day above another, that's fine. One man regards every day alike, that's fine too. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. His whole point is this. But you who are strong, who, you who have an informed conscience, you who know what is right and wrong, never, ever use your freedoms to, one, cause a weak person to stumble or who condemn that weak person or that person with different convictions. Never do that. Because those are their personal convictions they have as their own. And whether they made them themselves to protect themselves or whether they are ill-informed, you are not to say to your new Jewish convert, yeah, come on over for a ham sandwich. <laughs> you, don't, you don't use your freedoms to cause that person to stumble. And that's Paul's whole point. Now notice what he says here in verse 22 at the very end of the chapter. He says this, the faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. Paul's whole point is this. Paul's saying... You know, some of you know your freedoms in Christ, 
And that's good. Happy are you. But do not use your freedoms to lead other people into sin, to cause them to stumble. Don't. Whatever you do, don't do that. You know, let's say you grew up in a family that taught you that eating pizza was of the devil. You know, that the pepperonis represented the eyes of Satan, that... um, the sauce represented the blood of, uh, you know, idol sacrifices, and the cheese represented the sin which Satan wants to entangle you in, or something like that. So, so you're, you grow up in this family that they say, this is evil, this is evil, this is evil. And so, you know, you've got a very strong conscience in the area of not eating pizza. And you make it through until you, you graduate from high school, and, you know, they homeschool you so you don't get, get near the, the pizza eaters. And... Um, <laughs> And keep it separate. Then, then what happens is you go to college. I mean, everybody in college is just eating pizza. I mean, they're just mowing down on it. And it looks so good. And it smells so good. And everyone's doing it. But your conscience says, you can't eat pizza. That's of the devil. Now, even though the Bible doesn't say, thou shall not eat pizza... You would be sinning if you went against your conscience, not because eating pizza is a sin, but because defiling your conscience is a sin. That is what Paul is saying here. Whatever is not from faith, if you doubt, if you still do it, you are violating your conscience. You're jerking out the battery. So what do you do, you know, to help the guy who needs some pizza? What you do is you take him to the scriptures. You show him what the scriptures say. And when he becomes fully convinced in his own mind that God does not condemn eating of pizza, then he can eat pizza with a clear conscience, without doubting, and he is set free from that bondage, that lack of information. But until he gets to that place, you do not want to push him to eat something he would be defiling his conscience to do. If you make it a habit of rejecting, of pushing aside, of thrusting your conscience aside in any area, you are sinning and you will suffer shipwreck in regard to your faith. You cannot have a bad conscience and maintain your faith. Because your faith and your conscience are like Siamese twins. They are joined at the hip and if you divide them, they both die. You have to make sure your conscience is intact, that you know what God's Word says and that God's Word is informing your conscience. And when you get to a place where, the, where your conscience says, don't do that, don't do that, and you do it anyways, man, you're just like turning towards the reef. You are going to shipwreck your faith because whatever is not of faith is sin. So what have we learned this morning? We need to study the word so we can learn about the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We need to obey the word, which is to maintain our personal faith. And we need to maintain a good conscience, which is to be set free from guilt and doubt in what you do or think. And we must never, ever violate our conscience. If we 
aren't sure about what the Word of God says, then we diligently study the Word of God to make sure our conscience is adjusted correctly. But we never go against it thinking, well, maybe later I'll find out if pizza's sin. One of the early reformers was Thomas Cranmer. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury. And while the reformers were making an upswing in the face of the Catholic Church, a couple of them... Thomas Bilney and Hugh Latimer were burnt at the stake, and Thomas Cranmer was asked, told, to come and watch them. It was gruesome. And they knew that he was a very influential person, and so they, they said, we want you to recant your beliefs. And he saw the fear of these men at the stake, and he saw them burn alive, and he didn't want to go through that. And so against his conscience, he recanted his beliefs, which he knew in his heart were true. Well, his heart began to torment him. His heart tormented him so much that he publicly recanted his recantation. And so they were going to burn him at the stake. And they cat him under like house arrest. And the night before, he was troubled, and he wanted God to give him the grace to stand in the flames like Hugh Latimer did without flinching. And he put his finger into a candle and pulled it back because the pain was too great. And so all night, he prayed that God would give him the grace to stand firm. The next morning, he was tied to the stakes, his arms free, the wood stacked around him, and they lit the fire. And he took his hand and he placed it into the flames until it was burnt completely off. And during the whole time, he said, this unworthy right hand, this unworthy right hand, this unworthy right hand, because he did not want to die with a bad conscience. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that you have given us a conscience We thank you that each one of us has it to either excuse or condemn us. Father, I pray that all of us would take extra good care of their conscience, that we would adjust it frequently with your word, that we would create our own personal convictions that we might not go near areas of weakness and fall off the cliff. Father, may we be bold and brave enough and by your grace never pull the battery out of our conscience. And Father, in this world as there are so many temptations, may we encourage one another to do what is right so that we don't shipwreck our faith. Father, may we be like Thomas Cramner who could not stomach the thought of living even for a short while with a bad conscience. Father, if there's people here today who don't know you, if there's people here today who have never understood that they are sinners, that they need to repent and turn from their sins and receive you and your son and what he did on the cross on their behalf, if they have never confessed their sins to you, turn from their sins and receive Jesus Christ, may they do so now. Father, we pray these things in your precious name. Amen.